0: Welcome to Episode 71 of Frank Reactions, the podcast where we help you profit from the digital era through better customer experiences online and off. My name's Tema Frank. I still remember quite vividly the day that I found a colleague's pay stub on the photocopier. This was back in the late 1980s. He was a little younger than me, and he had less work experience. But He was one of the boys and went drinking with the other boys, including the vice president of our division, several times a week. It turned out that he was earning almost twice what I was. I was pretty shocked by that, and I confronted my boss. We had a very uncomfortable conversation, which did ultimately get me a raise, but was really one of the many things that happened in that particular organization that really left me pretty disillusioned with corporate life. And ultimately, when the organization had to do some layoffs, those of us who had not been in the bar drinking with the vice president were the first ones to go. And it took a while before head office clued in to the fact that the results had tumbled and uh, finally got rid of some of the boys as well. The reason I mention this is because today's guest, David Burkus, has written a book called Under New Management, in which he looks at a bunch of traditional ways that we have run things with employees that just aren't really very functional. And perhaps the most controversial thing in his book is his argument in favor of full salary transparency he makes the point in there that you already probably feel the system's unfair and are guessing about what other employees are earning. Why not just bring the whole thing out into the open and put a little pressure on executives to make sure that pay really does correspond with productivity? Interesting argument, one of many that I think you will find quite fascinating in this discussion. I'll chat with you briefly at the end.
1: Hi, this is David Burkis, the author of Myths of Creativity and the new book Under New Management.
0: David, so what inspired you to write a new book? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I, I mean, I have a problem. I have an addiction, right? So uh, I'm already thinking about writing a new book and this one just came out. So that's let's start from that, the admission that I have an addiction. But um, my first book, The Myths of Creativity, was all about sort of what are the misconceptions we have about how creativity and innovation work inside companies? And while I was there, that sort of leads to a natural rabbit trail on what are our assumptions about how workplace and management and all of those things are supposed to work and are those assumptions serving us? Uh, No surprise, they're not, right? If they were, then Dilbert wouldn't be so popular. (laughs) So that that led to the new book of like, okay, well, well, what are the things that break from those conventions, break from those assumptions and are really, really working?
0: Give us a a quick overview of what Under New Management is about, and then we'll get into some of the specifics.
1: So the the big idea is that great leaders don't innovate the product, they innovate the factory. So they don't necessarily focus on how do we make a new innovative service offering, they focus on their people, and then their people figure out how to do that.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And we saw this 100 years ago with Frederick Taylor, and he made some amazing ideas on how to reinvent a physical factory to be hugely efficient we unfortunately drug a lot of those ideas with us from the factory to the office. And that's why we're finding they're not working. Mm-hmm. And so the, again, the goal of the book was to shine a spotlight on the ideas that do work. And this is, they run the gamut. Everything from, you know, is email the best tool for communication to is our vacation policy in sync to do we even need managers? Uh, there's a bunch of different ideas in the book. Each of them kind of uh, pairs that idea. And it, in practice at organizations of various sizes and various industries, with the psychological research on, hey, here's why this idea, even though it sounds totally unconventional, is probably a better idea than what convention is. Uh, so, in my, my goal was really to kind of prove it might be crazy, it might sound crazy, but it works better than business as usual.
0: Yeah, I I totally agree. I think a lot of the workforce structures we've got are designed for a factory-based workplace, and that's not really what most of us have anymore. Although it's interesting because even some of the people I've spoken to who have factories have found that self-managed work teams they can run a factory without having to dictate what hours you have to be there the the group will actually find its own solution yeah did you look at any examples of that sort of thing of uh, self-managed work teams in situations where one wouldn't expect it
1: to work yeah so i mean we actually did we looked at a factory so we looked at the um GE Dur- GE Durham plant which is a plant a factory that makes um giant jet engines right and they had this crazy, the whole plant began with this crazy idea of normally when you run a factory, right, you have FAA, a factory that produces jet engines. You have FAA certified, uh, which is the Federal Aviation Administration, certified um, people, engineers who are designing it, some mechanics who are the sort of supervisors. And then you have a lot of people who don't need to be familiar with all of those regulations, don't need to be certified because their job is just, you know, turn the crank to this angle along the assembly line, et cetera. That's the normal way. They started with this idea of what if everybody we hired for this new factory was that FAA level quality person who understood uh, a whole lot more than what we were normally asking workers to understand. And then based on that, they started saying, okay, well, what about management structure wise? Because these are people who are now kind of really qualified to make decisions, to solve problems, who have a level of knowledge uh, that's higher than what we expect. What does that turn into? And it turned into basically a, a management list structure. So it turned into self-managed teams. They run on um, basically two shifts and then there's an over, they deliberately schedule those two shifts to overlap. So there's a whole community meeting every day as the two teams meet with each other to hand off work, discuss problems, all of that sort of thing. And it leads to not only a better quality, quality being defined as lowest, like low error rates better quality product, but it also leads to a better quality commitment from the people. I mean, there there are stories of uh, these factory workers at GE Durham who will jump into the truck and sweep out the truck bed to make sure there's no little imperfections, no screws, no nothing that's going to damage their engine in, in the truck bed before they'll let it leave the factory, right? They're really taking care of their baby.
0: Well, that's it. I mean, it gives people a sense of ownership over what they do. And they will take a lot better care of something they feel that they can really have an influence on and really matter to.
1: Yeah, totally. And I mean, one of the other assumptions that Taylor made was that people who were doing the labor were essentially too dumb to know exactly what to do. So it was management's job to decide what they should do and then just judge them on that. Well, most of the things, even inside of factories, like we've been talking about, most of them require such a level of understanding about how it all works and how it all fits together that that assumption's invalid anymore. And in fact, a lot of times what you see now is at places like G-Derm at at big, making complex engines and those sort of things, the people who are working on the front line may understand it more than do the people who are in the office managing the whole thing because they're just looking at a spreadsheet Mm -hmm. and somebody else is up to their elbows in a jet engine. And if that's the case, then the people on the front line probably can better manage their process than the people who don't really understand everything about how to make the product.
0: Absolutely. So these ideas strike me as being so obvious. And yet, most businesses are very, very resistant to changing the way they do things, and being more flexible, trusting their staff more. Why do you think that is? And, and how do you think it can be overcome?
1: So I mean, first, I think it's a problem of inertia. And second, I think it'll take care of itself. Uh, and here's what I mean by that. So the the problem primarily is, uh, we as creatures are just very scared of change. We say we want blue sky, out of the box thinking. There's a lot of research that supports when we when we get what we want, we don't even recognize it. We <laughs> recognize it as a new, scary idea, and we're not willing to trust it. the The other thing that complicates is that I mean, let's let's think about organizations and even in a in a company where the average tenure shrinks from 40 years to, you know, five to eight years, you still generally have people who are higher up in the org chart because they've been there longer, Mm -hmm. which means they have a vested interest in protecting whatever systems and procedures got them to that place, right? It's what they did when they were at that next level, so they don't understand why you're advocating for change, right? Right. So those things kind of contribute to the inertia. Interestingly, I think, to some extent, the problem will take care of itself. In other words, like one one of my friends likes to say, the future is already here, it's just not evenly dispersed. (laughs) And when you look at the ideas in under new management, they are what... To, to attract and retain the most talented caliber of employee, they are the changes you're going to have to make. Indeed, people are already making them. So the future of talent management is already here. It's just not evenly dispersed. And if you don't make those changes, you're going to see more and more of your top quality people gravitating to companies that have made those changes. So you'll either make them eventually or you'll go out of business. My, my hope is that you hear the message and you think, hmm, maybe we should start this conversation now so we don't miss out on our best people.
0: So how do companies that you've looked at handle the situation? I mean, in in any organization, I certainly believe that the majority of employees, the vast majority will respond well to being given greater responsibility and autonomy. But there are going to be a small proportion who just simply cannot accept new ways of doing things. Have you seen any effective ways that companies have dealt with that?
1: Well, I mean, it really varies by the company. So a, a lot of the companies that I profile in the book, I have to, I have to admit um, probably one criticism is that a lot of them started out that way. Yeah. So as they grew, they did that. That doesn't mean all of them did, right? So a lot of them made that transition. How they make that transition uh, varies from, you know, just senior decisions and this is what we're going to do. Um, to involving everyone in the conversation, leading discussions, town halls, moving forward, et cetera. And it really comes down to what the existing culture was. Okay. And I have to credit senior leaders on knowing what that was. Mm-hmm. You know, it, one, one of the interesting ones that personally I think gets a bad rap is uh, as it comes to autonomy and um, self-management and those sort of things, we're, we've witnessed, and it, it sort of happened just soon enough to where I couldn't write about it because I didn't have final you know, information <laughs> about it, uh, because of the publishing cycle, but Zappos just sort of made that famous shift from uh, traditional org charts and management structures to holacracy. Now, personally, my jury is still out specifically on holacracy, but overall, I mean, I, I definitely support the idea of self-managed teams, giving people more autonomy. Those sort of things. I don't know if this. I don't. I don't think any system is um, custom tailored, and or or isn't custom tailored, and can just be adopted the way that sort of holacracy proclaims. But. Anyway, what I was going to say was that uh, we give Zappos a bad rap because, you know, something like 10% of the people in their company, mostly managers, decided, you know what, this new manager manager managerless structure is not for us. Mm -hmm. And that's a signal that it's not working. Well, not necessarily. Like, the brilliant thing that Zappos did is they said this is where we're going, this is where the majority, remember 90-something percent of people stayed, yep. this is where the majority support going, and we're going to make the transition easier for you by basically offering you a severance if you decide this isn't right for you. Yeah. So, I mean, a severance has happened all the time when people get laid off. They very rarely happen when people say, I don't like where this company is headed, and so I'm leaving. I find it amazing that they basically decided to say, we'll make that job easier for you if you decide your, your future's not with us. Yeah, I, you know, so that's that's one way you do it. There are there are other more democratic ways and sometimes you just you just do it. I also talk about um, New Belgium Brewery out of Colorado, mm-hmm. that it was very much a senior leadership decision to put stock in the hands of employees because the senior leaders were the, the shareholders. They, they were the owners of the business. So in that culture, in that regard, everybody was obviously accepting of it, but they definitely had to make the decision from the top down of we're giving our shares to the company.
0: So, what do you see as being some of the the elements that are required to make employee share ownership actually work? Because it can be great when things are doing well, and then things don't do so well. If you haven't laid the foundation right, that can actually lead to a backlash.
1: Yeah. So, I I, th- I mean, I, like I said, the first big contextual variable is culture. You know, if you if you have a culture that is already very much about cover your what whatever word you, or whatever letter you want to use to end CY. <laughs> uh, if it's very much about that, if it's very much about pushing work off to other people, meaning we don't, we want to do as little work as possible. Um, if there's a lot of distrust between senior management and lower levels, then it's probably not going to work, right? So you have to do that culture piece first. Yeah. And you have to gradually, as you're doing that culture piece, you have to sort of gradually turn up the dial on Uh, perceived control and autonomy over the individual tasks of the work. So in other words, if you're not an organization that already has a culture um, where people are already have some level of psychological ownership, even if they don't have physical ownership, then it's probably not going to work. And then you still have to gradually turn up the dial on um, how much, control on how much autonomy you're, you're you're sort of giving them, right? Because there there very there are examples of companies that say, I mean, let's use a small little thing like uh, moving from uh, regular vacation policy to unlimited vacation, which is essentially saying we trust you to make decisions about how much vacation time you take. It doesn't work at every company because some companies see some employees see it as oh no the company's trying to trap me for taking too much vacation mm. etc so they don't they're, they're so not used to having control in that area that going from feeling like you have no control to here have total control it feels like a trap
2: yeah right? yeah
1: so that transition has to be really gradual and you see that in new belgium right they they were originally a, a company where there were two owners, two founders, they had equal equity. Then they had a system where after one year of employment, you know, longer tenured employees gradually got equity. And then eventually it was just sort of the logical conclusion that we have brought this uh, team to a place where we can hit fully hand off responsibility to the team. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was a gradual process. And you can't just sort of do it overnight, um, especially if your culture is not in place.
0: Yeah, for sure. You talked about, okay, we've talked about the unlimited vacation thing. What about this whole concept? You you mentioned holacracy. And like you, I'm not 100% convinced on that. It seems to me it's got an awful lot of rules, and it's kind of more complex than it needs to be. What about the notion of managing for results or what's been branded the results only work environment?
1: Yeah, so um, I guess I should back up. I am inherently skeptical of any program that says this will work at any company, just try it here, buy our our book or go to our seminar, right? Yes. Um, The the goals of a results-only work environment are definitely uh, valid. The problem, again, goes back to um, do you have a culture that's willing to accept, wait, you mean my manager's not going to be watching to check and see what time I come in in the morning, what time I leave at night, those sort of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that approach is best gradual. And as you as you go gradually for it, you're going to find the level that's right for you, right? So very few organizations who start trying to implement Roe or start trying to implement Holacracy can go from zero to exactly what's spelled out in the book or the seminar or what have you. Mm-hmm. In, instead, they ought to gradually transition. If you want to gradually transition to Roe, you know, that's great. I'm a big fan of, of their work. Um, I just think the goal is to lay out a path towards that sort of ideal and realize that every organization is going to fall somewhere different on that spectrum. Yeah, that makes sense. And that really it's more about a continuum than it is about here, adopt this exact model, right? And that's one of the reasons that Holacracy in particular gives me so much pause is the, the founders of it, describe it as, oh, this is an operating system that you can just install into your organization and it'll work for them. Yep. I promise you it will not work for every single organization Yeah. because every culture is different and that affects whether or not the operating system is glitchy or not.
0: Yeah, for sure. So I have two specific things that I, I wanted to question you about. One of them was the issue of full salary disclosure. That's something that I think is still pretty controversial. And, and that was, and that's how you and I actually first got talking or writing, I guess, was in some experiments, they have found that, for instance, making CEO salaries widely available actually drove up salaries, increased the gap between CEOs and their workers rather than bringing it closer into line. So talk a little bit about the salary issue and, and disclosure of salaries.
1: Yeah, so, so first I, I've got to make a statement that will not be popular, but hear me out. <laughs> um, C- CEOs are tough because CEOs don't have any other peers inside the organization. Mm-hmm. That's that's not to say that they're better people or anything, like that, but like the nature of the hierarchy means there's no one across the organization they can look at, right? Mm-hmm. So the only thing they have to do is compare themselves to CEOs in other companies. And, you know, like our challenge with isolating out CEO transparency is that it happened alongside a gradual shift to, uh, from regular salary to stock-based compensation, mm-hmm. presumably because that would make them feel more like owners mm-hmm. and et cetera. But it turns out, I mean, stock prices are a weird thing to do this on because the stock price is essentially speculative, right? So we, we, like, we love to assume that whatever the stock price is times the number of shares, that's what the company is worth not actually true that's just what all of the people who own those shares believe the company is worth on that particular day right. right and it can go up and it can go down and when you when you tie a ceo compensation to that then the subtle message is you know your job is to raise the stock price and that's true but i think everybody would also say with the caveat of to not do it in a way that lowers the stock price down the road yeah right and that's the challenge that we see um if first of all it's not really working. people are more likely to make risky decisions in that in that type of stock price scenario. But then, like you said, it also triggered that sort of dramatic spike in CEO pay and and I mean, to some extent, it provided a way to kind of hide compensation because you could say x amount is salary, x amount is whatever so it, it's it, there's a ton of variables there
2: mm-hmm.
1: I, I'm more interested in inside the organization at a broader level, peer to peer level, especially. What is, what does transparency versus secrecy do to an organization? And the biggest criticism I get over total transparency throughout an entire organization is that will cause animosity and comparisons and yes, that won't cause them though. Those things are already there. They're there in a secrecy condition too, right? We're already we're we're doing it subtly, right? We're looking over somebody's shoulder as they're photocopying their pay stub, or we're judging them based on the car that they drive to work, or the watch that they're wearing that day, et cetera. Like we're still making judgments about what we think someone earns, right? And comparing that to what we think they're doing productivity wise. This is this is not a new phenomenon. We have fifty years of research uh, on this. It's it's referred to as equity theory. This idea idea that we are uh, always making these comparisons between how hard we work and what we get paid to how hard we perceive other people to work and what we perceive them to get paid mm-hmm. what salary transparency does is is it removes that perception and makes it known right so you you still have this perception of how hard they're working although in an in a 100% transparent condition you have sort of total salary transparency combined with sort of a team accountability that means not only do you know for sure how hard somebody's working you also know what they're getting paid these like i said earlier these comparisons are already happening transparency just gives them the real data for it right hmm. and so and but i i also believe that you know most HR representatives in most organizations endeavor to have a fair salary system. Right. right. But I would argue that most employees don't believe their company has a fair system because <laughs> they can't, they can't see it all. Right. So well, if that's And having focus. done
0: a lot of research on women's salaries in the workplace, uh, I think there is still quite a bit of unfairness that happens there because traditionally women have not bargained
1: as hard on salary. as men. Oh, I totally agree. And, and, I mean, there's a couple other confounding factors, too, but one thing I think is interesting is if you remove all factors and you just go soup to nuts, right? Mm -hmm. In the United States, you have um, 77 cents on the dollar or, or, you know, 77 percent of uh, what a man makes in a a transparent condition in the federal government in the United States that lowers actually to 11 percent.
2: Uh-huh. Right now, uh-huh.
1: like I said, there's there's some confounding factors and some things that if you do transparency, you also sort of do this. But there's clearly an effect there at narrowing it. Right. So it definitely helps in that regard mm-hmm. um, in narrowing it. The other thing I think is really interesting, you know, in in the book, I profiled um, Buffer, who is who is has like the, the highest top tier of transparency. Yeah. And n- not just to the point of sharing internally, but actually externally, everybody who gets uh, who works for Buffer. Their salaries posted on a website that shareholders or customers or anybody can look at, hmm. and they also and they also post the formula. So here's how we calculate the formula. And there was there was an article the other day in, in Fast Company that was basically criticizing it. it. Said, look, this company has salary transparency, and they just figured out they have a wage gap problem.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, they did, but that's that's a victory for transparency. Yeah, exactly. Right? Because they they found out that information, and now they can take accurate steps to solve it, which was what the actual. If you read the interviews with the people who were in the article, the headline was very much a gotcha. It, <laughs> it, it was a clickbait headline, but the real story was Buffer has total transparency. They realize they have a little bit of a gap because uh, in, in their case, it turned out to be like they have four factors that judge salary, and one of them is experience, and experience is basically like uh, take the person's word for it on how many years they've been in the industry. Mm-hmm. And this kind of goes back to your negotiation piece. Women were more likely to sort of, lessen the value of how much experience they had compared to a man who would say they have more experience than they really do, right? Right. But again, they would have never found this problem had it not been for a total transparency condition. Although
0: one would would argue their HR department would have had that data.
1: Well true, true, but I mean, so so buffers a startup, so uh, HR departments but, okay, fair enough, right, but I mean, but you're right, but also would there I mean, would their HR department bother to make the interventions to fix it and say you need to get a reduction you need I mean a transparency addition makes it far easier to do the intervention to actually fix it
0: absolutely, that makes sense
1: and that's that's really the challenge, like I said earlier, I, I don't think very few people this is the weird thing about the gender wage gap, very few people. You know, the far, far fringe argue that, no, we really should have this. The argument is over how to fix it. Right. Right. And, and I think every um, CEO and every HR director and everybody sort of endeavors to solve this problem. The challenge is that in a secrecy condition, it's also just easier to ignore the problem. And so I think we ignore it more often. And a transparency, it becomes glaringly obvious and then you have to fix it sunlight is really the best disinfectant right
2: yeah
0: absolutely um i i remember doing the looking over on the photocopier thing and discovering that a junior colleague of mine was earning quite a bit more because he was part of the boys club so that was the last job i had where i was working for somebody else then i became self-employed and never looked back
1: right? <laughs> well there you go and and interest, interestingly, um, there's there's a great um Freakonomics episode about really diving into the data on the gender wage gap and showing those different conditions. And I love that your solution is is a is a very often attempted one, which is I'll just go work for myself and then I don't I don't have to worry about it. Right. Yeah. And again, it, it presents that sort of ideal of when you when you work for yourself, there definitely is a correlation between how hard you work and what you get paid, right? So it's not based on a, a subjective perception it's based on, did you do the work or not? Okay, client, pay me.
0: Yeah, exactly. The other thing that I, I wanted to discuss with you is using teams, and you talked about hiring processes, and we all know that hiring processes are generally not very effective. Uh, we know that interviews are terribly ineffective at determining whether somebody's likely to do well on the job, and so there are some companies that are moving more and more towards involving all the potential employees coworkers in the decision making. One thing that worries me a little bit about that is if you've got the team deciding who to hire. Are you not running some pretty serious risks that they're just going to replicate themselves and that you lose out on diversity of viewpoint, of culture, of, of gender, of whatever?
1: A very, very true concern and, and definitely a realistic one if you are already not a very diverse company, but and you're trying to intentionally increase it. Yeah. Um, if you already have that level of diversity, I don't think you have to worry about it, right? Because yes, they are going to try and replicate themselves. And that's sort of a good thing, right? Right. So I, I definitely agree with you. I think there's a level to which if if there is a very um homogenous current group of employees, then you have to intervene and take steps to de- to decide who gets to be a part of the hiring decision. Right. So so I teach at a university and like most universities, there are more white males than there are anything else. Right. <laughs> yeah. uh, and we do ha- we do have committee hiring, but we have very specific rules on what the committee is made up of, both for. Um, demographic and ethnic diversity, but also even ideological diversity. Uh, I mean, I teach in business, right? So everyone who's ever studied economics either goes to the side of Keynes or the side of uh, Frederick Hayek. Right. So we have to have somebody from both right. in the hiring process, or else the, the Keynesian is only going to hire Keynesians, et cetera. Right. So we know these things, and then we can make those kind of deliberate steps towards. So I mean, you're definitely right. If there's a if there's a homogenous group, then you kind of have to make sure that the hiring team is not that homogenous, that it represents the level of diversity that you aspire to. Mm -hmm. If you've already hit that level of diversity, then you don't necessarily have to worry about that. The the interesting thing to me just has to do with performance, right? That we are, I mean, prediction is just really hard. And so interviews and a bunch of other methods of picking who the high performers are going to be are really difficult. It turns out that one of the biggest factors in an individual's performance are the resources supplied by the team. So it's it's not a question of letting the team pick who they want to work with. It's To me, it's really more about the individuals who are interviewing, giving them a chance to see this is the team you're going to work with. So does this team give you the same resources that allowed you to be a star at that previous company?
2: uh uh-uh.
1: I, I like, I, you know, I often like to remind people that we, we tend to think of hiring as like a sales process, right? A person is interviewing for the job and they're hoping to make the sale and convince everyone to hire them. And really, it's, it's not. It's a courtship. It's a dating process. The goal is for both parties to decide there's a future here.
0: Yeah. So realistically, how much time do you think it's reasonable for companies to spend on hiring one person? Because if you're getting your whole staff involved, that's a lot of staff time
1: yeah and so we 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 have to give the caveat again that it varies by company and all that sort of thing one one interesting thing I think is this exact problem happened at Google where they're they're notable for hiring as a team for involving tons of different people and lots of sometimes upwards of twenty interviews, et cetera mm. and they're also notable for keeping data on all sorts of things and so they looked into the data and basically what they found was that after four interviews, there was a dramatic reduction in how much, um, additional predictive validity was added by an individual interview? It was something like, uh, yes. you can make a decision with like 80% accuracy based on four interviews, and at five interviews you went from 80 to 84.
0: And it wasn't uh, worth it.
1: <laughs> right. So that, so, but again, I mean, that's something that honestly you have to sort of decide. I, I would say at a minimum, you should probably as- aspire to have, yes, the manager, and what, what we normally do is the manager and then the manager's manager. We should probably go the other way. The manager, one to two people from that peer group. Mm -hmm. And then if possible, one of the things I love about Google is they look at, hey, this is the position. So if you do well in it, it will probably lead to this new position three to five years from now. So who would your future subordinates be? And let's get someone from that group to the table. Oh, that's Uh, interesting. So that 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 would be the ideal, right, minimum is is upper peer group and then lower, Mm -hmm. right? Mm-hmm. that's probably not going to happen. So I would be happy just shifting one tier down. Normally, we go direct manager and then the manager's manager. Let's take those two and shift them down and go manager and then peers yeah. at, a, at a minimum.
0: So with all the ideas that you've put out in your book, which one or is there one in particular that gets more pushback than others?
1: Uh, the, the salary transparency one definitely gets a lot of pushback. Yeah. Um, I get that, like it, it's it's an uncomfortable feeling. Although I, I can tell you, it's cultural. Like there are there are countries where everybody's tax returns are publicly available, right? Really? Yeah, yeah. I forget which Scandinavian country, but it's one of them.
2: Cool.
1: I, I've just kind of had it with allowing the gender discrimination, the sense of unfairness. I mean, even if it's not a gender thing, I think most people, even though their workplace is trying to pay fairly, most people assume it's not. And I've just kind of had it with that discomfort. Yeah. And so yeah, sharing salaries might be uncomfortable, but not doing it is way more uncomfortable. And that's kind of the argument that I want to make is we have a trade off here of two different uncomfortable things. One leads to a better outcome than the other. So we ought to be switching.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you see, if there is that transparency, then it puts pressure on where, for instance, there have been bad hiring decisions, and somebody's still there, but not productive. It, it, Brings that much more into the open right is there we've pretty much run out of time here. Is there anything that you wish i'd asked you and i haven 't
1: hmm that's a really good question <laughs> no i mean i, I I'm not sure it's the exact question um, I, if we could i'd love to answer the question I know listeners are are having, which is kind of like why should we make this switch? The old ways are working, and we already kind of talked about the future is already here it 's just not evenly dispersed but you know, I, I really want to encourage people. I, I alluded to this earlier that I loathe any any solution that goes this will work at every single company and I get that won't happen. Mm-hmm. My encouragement is just to look at these ideas and in each chapter is a different idea, but also a range of different companies that are implementing the idea, and the goal for that is to send the message that there are multiple different ways to attack this problem yep. with a solution that's in line with each other. And so even if everything we've talked about in the last, you know, half hour doesn't resonate with you, because you'd say that exact way won't work at our company. Think about the principle behind the practice or the policy. And there's probably a way to do make a change that's in line with that principle. And that's the real goal.
0: Just wanted to start with one little clarification of something David had said in there. He talked about women earning in the United States, on average, 77% of what men do, But in the government, uh, he commented that lowers to 11%. What he meant was the gap lowers to 11% versus the 23% that it is where there is not full pay transparency. If the ideas we discussed on this episode resonate with you, I do recommend picking up a copy of David's book under new management. And also, I think you will quite enjoy my new book, People Shock, The Path to Profits When Customers Rule, because I discuss a lot of those same things in there. Fundamentally, we both agree that the way the workforce has been managed for the last 50 years or so is no longer functional, and organizations really have to make some pretty major changes very soon, or they will be, as I put it in my book, people-shocked and will be the ones that don't survive. Speaking of the book, if you have not already signed up, I would suggest you head on over to peopleshock.com and sign up to be on the PeopleShock Insiders list. There you will get the introduction and first chapter of the book free right away. And you'll be getting some bonuses over coming weeks. And you will be among the first to be notified when the book is finally available, which hopefully won't be too much longer. You will, of course, get an invitation to the launch party. My current thinking on that is that I'm probably actually going to do a soft launch when the book comes out, which will be, if all goes smoothly, mid-May, and then not actually hold the launch party until September, because I'm (laughs) going to be traveling from mid-May to late June, and it'd be kind of hard to do the launch while I'm not around. Then we're into summer, and Don't know that people are really doing a lot of focusing on reading business books during the summer. Although, if you're looking for something to read on the beach, by all means, do go check on Amazon see if the book's available. In fact, I'm just in the process of putting the book up for pre-sale on Amazon, and what I'll be doing is anybody who pre-orders the book just send me your receipt, and I will immediately send you an electronic copy of the book. So you'll end up with the early electronic edition as well as whichever version you choose to buy online. So if you want to take advantage of that, I believe right now it is listed on amazon.ca and should be on .com within the next day or two. Just send a copy of your receipt to Tema T-E-M as in marketing A, at frankreactions.com. I would love to hear your feedback on this podcast episode or anything else. So you can always reach me at that email address or on Twitter, simply at Tema Frank, by phone at toll-free 866-544-9262. That's all for today. Have a wonderful week. Bye.